right at the outset, I want to say something extremely profound, deep, intelligent. All of the students are going, this would be a first. But I, I just want to start out with that, and here it is. Are you ready for this? This is it. I do not like to suffer. I see disappointment on some of the note takers' faces. Like they were ready with the pen and everything, and they were like, that's not significant at all. That's not significant because chances are you would say the exact same thing. That's not profound because you would resonate with that. You'd go, yeah, I understand that. I don't like to suffer either. I don't like to suffer even when my suffering is a direct result of my own foolish choices. I'll go even further. I don't like to suffer when I'm suffering because of my sin. I don't like suffering. And yet as we come to this text this morning, as Peter talks about suffering, he's not just talking about suffering in all of these different categories. He's zeroing into a specific type of suffering, and he's specifically speaking to suffering for doing what is right. So look with me at our passage here. Verse 21 starts this way. It says, for to this... You have been called. Now we first have to ask ourselves, well, what's the this? If I've been called to it, what is the this? That takes us back up to verse 20 that we read a minute ago. And it would be this. But if when you do good and suffer for it, that it is really important. Because Peter is not saying if you tend to do good, but while you're doing good, you're kind of a jerk. And you suffer for being kind of a jerk. That's not what he's talking about. He's saying this suffering that you're experiencing is a direct result of the good that you are doing. And you endure it. Now, as we were reminded already this morning, this passage right here, verses 21 through 25, I see, I understand, to kind of be the hub. They kind of function as the, the hub of this wheel and the spokes come off. They go back to uh, where Justin was last week in submission to authority, starting in verse 13. The immediate context is this servant-master relationship that we read about in verse 18 and 19. But, but then they will notice next week they reach even down into chapter 3 because you notice at the beginning of chapter 3, Peter starts out by saying, Likewise. Well, what is he drawing off of? He's connecting back to that, these verses. So while the immediate context is servant master, as you read through this letter that Peter writes, you will find that this, this issue of suffering for what is good is a major theme throughout all of First Peter. So verse 21, for to this, so the this of verse 21 is that, that you suffer for doing good as a direct consequence of your good, your suffering for it. And this is what Peter says, and I just want you to hear this for a moment. Peter says, for to this you have been called. Now just let that sit for a moment. Because Peter is writing to believers scattered about, believers who are suffering solely because they are believers, and Peter is writing to them, and on its face, this does not sound very comforting. 
But in actuality, this goes down to the bedrock, to our, to our, our, our way that we see the world and our kind of philosophy of life, our worldview. And Peter is speaking to that and he says, listen, I want you to understand something. When you were called, and when he talks about the call, he's not just talking about some new call. He's talking about the call of God, the effectual call of God on those who come to faith in Jesus Christ. You and I, dead in sin, have no ability to save ourselves. God has to do something so we can respond to the gospel. That's the call of God, and that call continues all the way from that moment all the way to glorification. That call continues, and Peter is saying a part of that call for every child of God is this. You have been called to suffer. And not just suffer for stupidity. I got that one. Not just suffer for sin, to suffer as a direct consequence for doing what is right. Now I know that in my head, right? I know that, I've read scripture enough, I understand that that, that, that can be possible, but when I think about life and, 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 and when I think about my, my week, when I think about day-to-day living, here's what I tend to think, when suffering comes into my life, this must be a detour from God's will for me. When I encounter suffering, I begin to think there's no way this could be right smack dab in the center of God's will for my life. And I certainly don't see the suffering that enters into my life as God answering my prayers for His grace to show up. But that's what Peter says. Now I think that's so important and why I mentioned before, it doesn't maybe seem initially very comforting. But listen, if you've ever been given a task and you thought it was supposed to be easy, and then it turns out to be hard, how does that go? I mean, if I'm going into something and I thought this was supposed to be easy, and then it turns out to be incredibly difficult, well, anger is one temptation that comes up. Quitting altogether is another. Screaming at whatever object or task I've been given, because ultimately it's its fault, right? Not mine. You see, when I think, when my mindset, when my worldview is that this is supposed to be easy and walking in the center of God's will should be easy and that progressing in my walk with the Lord means this constant move towards ease in life, then I open up these temptations to myself as suffering comes in. But when I have a mindset, as I go into a task and somebody warns me ahead of time, they say, hey, Flintoff, listen, this is going to be really hard. This is going to be extremely difficult. This is going to wear you out. This is going to be, this is going to be really hard for you. Then when the difficulty comes, I'm not shocked. Then when the difficulty comes, I'm not surprised. I don't go, whoa, am, I mean, am I, do, am I screwing up? Is this what's supposed to happen? No, I find strength to continue and to endure. Peter here is reminding these believers and the Lord is reminding you and I this morning, we must understand our calling. God's call on the life of every one of His children. Listen to me this morning. You've got to hear this and we need to have our minds conformed to this because we tend to bend the other way. This is God's call for every single one of His children is that you would 
suffer for doing good. If that was not His plan, then the moment you put your saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, He should take you out of this world into glory. Because as long as you live here on this earth, and your heart by the work of the Holy Spirit grows to line up with His heart, as the wisdom of the world becomes further foolishness to you, and the wisdom of God becomes a treasure to you, a world that is ruled by the prince of the power of this air will grow to despise you if they persecuted Christ. They will persecute you. We are called to suffer. You thought about that this week? Does that enter into your mind? As you encounter suffering, and trust me, beloved, as, as I thought about this, I found myself wrestling with this because I know these things to be true. And in my mind, academically, mentally, I understand that there's suffering in life. But do I think is the lens through which I view my life, my week, my Mondays, this lens that says I can be smack dab in the center of God's will for my life and be enduring suffering for doing what is right. Now I know, what, what, do, we, what do we immediately say? But um, wh- why? Excuse me. Wh- why? Why? Right? And it's almost as if Peter knew that. He knew the why question was coming, so look what he says. You... For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you. Now, do not read that and hear Jesus suffered so you have to suffer. Jesus died on the cross for you so you need to suffer for Him. Take that, put it in the little trash can, you know, on the screen on your computer, a little trash can in your mind and empty the bin. That is not what Peter is saying. Peter is saying, the Father with love that has been for all of eternity past, in total love for the Son, purposed that the Son living out the perfect will of the Father would result in what? Suffering for what was right. Suffering for good. And that suffering brought about great glory. And so he says, like Christ... He has a purpose and a plan in your life to draw you into suffering for doing what is good to bring about great glory. We have story after story throughout church history of individuals who have suffered greatly for doing what is right. And on the other side of that suffering, we have testimony after testimony after testimony of people whose faith is more sure, whose certainty of God's promises in His Word is more firm, whose whose minds are, are, are more solidly fixed on the Lord Jesus Christ than they were before they entered into that suffering. Listen, gang, when life is going well, when everything is roses, when your kids are well behaved, when your house is totally clean, when you're getting all the promotions at work, when your car never breaks down, when you've had the same washing machine for 20 years and it's still all the clothes come out sparkling white and your life is just roses all the time and you say, hallelujah, Jesus, the world says, shut up. That's not our experience. But when you suffer, 
for what is good. And you endure. You cling. You hold on to that. People stop and they go, wait a second. What's going on here? Where does this hope come from? And it draws attention to that thing to which you value so much that you would be willing to endure suffering for what is right and yet not let it go. Now how do we do that? That's the question. If we understand our calling and that calling is to suffer, then how are we supposed to suffer? And the second thing we see in this passage is we must see our example. Capital E, example. So look with me at where Peter goes next. He says, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. That word example there, one commentator says it was used of, of students who were learning to write letters. Do you remember those days? Do you remember those pieces, of, those huge pieces of paper with the dashed line in the middle? I still to this day don't understand why those pieces of paper are so thin. Like they give you a pencil that's the size of a bat. The eraser's made out of like gravel. They're trying to teach you to write and then they give you a piece of paper that the moment you try to erase, it just tears all to shreds. Anyway. These are, this is the suffering that I've endured in my life. But that's the image. You remember that, right? Your tongue sticking out, your pudgy little fingers are trying to grab that pencil some way and you're tracing that letter. Always starts out really nice and then towards the end it's like... Brrr. Example, follow. And then he repeats that idea again and he says... That we, so that we may, might follow in his steps. This following is close behind following. This is not that caravan following. I just want to clear something up. All caravanning is suffering and should be done away with. There will be no caravanning in the kingdom. But there's always that person in the caravan who decides in that moment that they don't, they're convicted, they cannot go over the speed limit. Because they're wise, they don't even want to tempt themselves to go over the speed limit, so they need to go 10 miles per hour under the speed limit. And so they get further and further back there. That's not the type of following we're talking about. This is like following if Jesus brake checked, you're just going to smash right into him. That's the type of following we're talking about. Follow behind this example. So what's the example then? What does Peter say? I'm ready. Jesus is the example. Okay, here we go. We can do this. And then what does he say? Verse 22. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten now, as we were reminded this morning, I think that Peter probably has primarily in mind that moment when the sufferings of our Savior kind of are put under the magnifying glass. That moment from his arrest to his death. We see him live this out, but, but we need to understand this because I don't think that's all Peter has in mind here. Jesus' suffering did not start the moment that he was arrested. Jesus' suffering did not start the moment that they started to accuse Him, the moment they started spitting on Him or beating Him. Jesus' suffering started the moment that He put on flesh and was born to sinful parents. Jesus' suffering started the moment He entered this world. And listen to this, gang. 
every moment that Jesus suffered, he never once suffered because he had done something wrong. As Jesus suffered, he suffered for what was for doing right. And not just at his trial, and not just at the crucifixion. When he suffered, was there no reviling? When he suffered, there was no threatening. Throughout his entire life, never once did he suffer for what was good and respond with sin. Suffer for what was good and deceit be found in his mouth. Suffer for what was good and he reviled in return or threatened. His entire life, he suffered for what was good and he endured. And he endured And he endured. What we see at the moment of his trial and his crucifixion was not a new thing in the life of Christ. It was the completion of a life filled with suffering for doing what was right. For perfectly obeying the will of the Father. For only saying what the Father told him to say. Only doing what the Father told him to do. So when we see him there that night in the garden saying, Father, not my will, but your will be done. This is not a new theme. This was not a new prayer. This had been the prayer of his entire life. Now, gang, let's be honest with one another. (laughs) I'll at least be honest with you. I've got the mic. You're not really supposed to be talking. So when I suffer... Well, one, I'm kind of an emotional guy, if you hadn't caught up with that yet. So when I suffer, people tend to know. When I'm having a bad day, I don't really hide it well. But not only is it evident that I'm suffering, here's what happens. I went to public school, that probably explains a lot. And in public school, we had these things called passes, excuse notes. And in order to be counted as excused for being tardy or for being absent, you needed an excuse note. Guys would try and steal these notes and sell them to you and things. It's never a good deal. But here's what I do when I suffer. I have a bad day. It can be that I'm having a bad day because I made a stupid choice. It could be that I'm having a bad day because I sinned. It doesn't matter. I'm suffering and here's the thing. I take out my excuse notes and I write, Dear Amanda Flintoff, that happens to be my wife. Shocking, I know. And I say, I know God's word commands me to die to myself that Christ might be formed in you. But Eric is suffering today, therefore he is excused from this command. Sincerely, Eric Flintoff. So when I get home, don't even expect me to be loving and kind. I'm suffering. Dear Hannah, Malachi, and Phoebe, these are my children, pray for them. Your father has suffered today. And although the Bible forbids him from provoking you to anger, he's angry and he wants you to suffer with him. Therefore, he is excused from obeying this command. Sincerely, Daddy, wipe that stupid look off your face, go to your room. Now that's when I suffer just when it's, it may even be my own fault. If I'm suffering for doing what is good, oh, the excuses that I will give myself. I'm suffering for doing what's right, get out of my way. 
If anything, you should be applauding me. If anything, you should be falling down and singing my praises. And what do we see here in the example in Christ? He suffered over and over and over again for doing what was good. And never once did he break out his excuse notes and say, I'm excused from doing the will of the Father because today I suffered. Oh, and don't get into your mind that Jesus was some kind of uh, uh, spiritual hippie that just floated over the sufferings of life. Yeah, man, it's all good. No, Jesus sunk down deep into suffering. It wasn't empty words that He's there hanging on the cross and He cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He suffered. But he did not sin. He did not revile. He did not threaten. So what did he do? Well, Peter tells us. Instead of doing all of these things, what did Christ do instead? The end of verse 23 tells us, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Now again, you'll notice there that this was not a one-time act. He didn't one time in the garden or at some point in his life have this come to, I was going to say come to Jesus, but that doesn't work. This come to the Father moment and go, alright, I'm committing all of my life and I'm, I'm all in. No, this was a continual thing that Christ did. He continued to entrust Himself. Same word that's used a couple of times as Jesus tells parables like the, the, the Master giving His talents to his, his servants. He entrusted those talents to them. Jesus continually over and over and over again entrusted Himself to the Father. So right after Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What does He finish with? Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus entrusted himself over and over again. Because listen gang, the last thing I want you to understand and the last thing Peter wanted these people to understand or to think is that they were just supposed to sit in suffering like God was indifferent to suffering. Like if they were in an abusive and and unjust situation, they were just supposed to sit there and endure it. No, that's not it. That's not it at all. Jesus wasn't indifferent to sin and to suffering. But He entrusted Himself to the Father. If there is one person who I ultimately want to judge, it is God the Father. Now, here's where I think we do ourselves a disservice. It is in this that we have a tendency in our day and time to have a view of God the Father where He is compassionate, He's loving, He's kind, He's merciful, He's long-suffering, and all of those things are true, and they're great about Him. But when we divorce those things or we overemphasize those things to an understanding that we serve a holy God who is just and righteous and jealous and wrathful, then we end up with a problem. One, we don't fully understand His love when we fail to understand His holiness. We don't fully understand His compassion when we fail to understand His justice. But here's the other thing that happens. 
All of us probably had that teacher, that aunt, someone that we knew that was always just love, hugs, kisses, candy. Well, when your classmate is pounding your face on the playground at recess and lovey-dovey teacher comes over, oh, you guys just need a hug. Like, no, beat that boy. I want him punished. He's beating me. Don't hug him. Don't kiss him. Beat him. I want justice. Right? When I have a view of God the Father that's all love, it's all mercy, it's all compassion, it's all feel-good stuff, and there's not an understanding that our God in heaven is always for justice, then He is absolutely righteous, and He is totally jealous for His glory, then it becomes extremely difficult in the face of suffering to entrust myself to Him. To say it is better that he judge and he deal out the verdict than me. Jesus Christ entrusts himself over and over again to the Father. Now listen folks. That's the example. I'll just read it again just in case you didn't catch it. Here's the example. Commit no sin. Have no deceit in your mouth. Don't revile. Don't threaten. Perfectly entrust yourself to the Father. That's the example. Anybody left standing on that one? (laughs) Anybody going, oh yeah, I got that. I mean, move on. Next. I got that one. Do you feel the weight of that example? Suffering, and remember, we're not talking about suffering for sin. We're not talking about suffering for bad choices. We're talking about suffering for doing what is right. And here's the example that's held up. The Lord Jesus Christ, who perfectly suffered for doing what was good and never once sinned. Not only did He not sin in the moment, but He didn't get together with His disciples afterwards and go, hey man, you know those Pharisees, I mean, they're... And gossip and slander. He never even threatened, at least let me threaten. I mean, I'm not going to do anything, but at least let me talk big. Let him do that to me again. I'll show him. Oh, is he behind me? I mean, at least let me threaten. Never. Not one time. You have to see the perfection of that example to understand where Peter goes next. You have to. You have to feel the weight and the awesomeness of the Lord Jesus Christ and what He did and the example that He gives. Because if you don't feel the weight, here's the worst thing that you can do. Brother, sister in Christ, you're suffering this morning. Maybe you're suffering for doing what is good. The worst thing you could do is leave this morning and say, I got this, I can do this. Christ is a perfect example and listen to me, He will crush you because you will never measure up. And as Peter writes this to these believers, he he knows they will never measure up. He knows they will never measure up because Peter never measured up. What was Peter doing when Christ suffered like this? Was he there going, man, Jesus is amazing. When, Peter, when Jesus announced, hey, I'm going to die on a cross, was Peter like, all right, amen, here we go. No, that wasn't Peter. <laughs> He's like, over my dead body. 
When they come to arrest Jesus in the garden, Peter's like, okay, here we go, will of the Father, trust in ourselves to Him who judges justly. Nope, he's like, sword out, ear off. And Peter's watching Jesus silent as he's being accused, beaten, and mocked. Peter is not thinking in this way. Instead, he's calling down curses on himself, swearing that he doesn't even know that man. Peter had failed this miserably. He knew that as he wrote this to these believers that they were feeling the weight of this perfect example in Christ. And rather than diminish the standard, listen gang, rather than diminish the standard, which is what we are all tempted to do, Diminish the standard. If I suffer better than the person sitting next to me, if I suffer better than my neighbors, if I suffer better, no, that's not the example. Christ is the example. Without sin, without deceit in His mouth, He is the perfect example. So what do we need? What does Peter do in verse 24? He preaches the Gospel. He preaches the Gospel. Now here's what I do. Right? I understand the context of 1 Peter. It's written to believers. And then, as I'm following it through, believers, 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 then I get to him presenting the gospel, and I go, oh, an unbeliever must have showed up. He must be sharing the gospel with somebody who doesn't believe in Jesus. Who is he speaking to? He's speaking to believers. He's preaching the gospel to believers. Because... The gospel's not just for those who have never put their faith in Christ. The gospel is the hope of those of us who have put our faith in Christ. When you look at that perfect example of Christ, this is what you need to hear. Verse 24, He Himself, that perfect example, the Lord Jesus Christ, bore our sins in His body on the tree. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness by His wounds, you have been healed. Listen gang, if, 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 if what we take away from this passage and if what Peter was telling these believers in this context was, here's your example, it's Christ who never sinned and suffered for what was good and endured it all the time, now go out, suck it up and do it, then there is no hope in this passage. And we all might as well give up right now. What was their only hope? Their only hope was Christ. Their only hope was the fact that in the suffering of Christ, there was something much greater being accomplished. That He wasn't suffering for His own sin. He wasn't suffering for His own foolish choices. He was suffering because He took, not outside of Himself, but into His own body, our sin. He took it up onto the tree. Not the cross, because Peter's reminding them that He became a curse. For them. For us. He is our only hope. It is only by His wounds that we are healed. There is no other possibility. There is no other hope. That is our hope. It's not just our hope for the moment that we're converted. It is our hope for our entire lives. It is our hope for our sanctification and our glorification. It is Christ and Him alone. So Peter says this, 
He bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin. Gang, listen, before Christ, there was no hope that we could suffer. Even if we were suffering for doing good and be without sin, because we were dead in our sins, we were enslaved to sin. There was no hope that we could fight against sin. But because of what Christ has done, we are dead to sin. And that's not all. And live to righteousness. Now listen. In order for you and I to live to righteousness, in order for Peter to be telling these believers to live to righteousness, it must mean that they were declared already righteous or else Peter is calling them to be something they were not. Peter is not saying, now go out and be hypocrites. You're not really righteous, but pretend you are. He is saying in Christ, the moment that you put your faith in Christ... Your sins were done away with. You died to sin and you were declared righteous. Now, because you've been made new in Christ, live righteousness. Why? Because I can do it? No, because Christ is working. Because my confidence is now I'm going to look at myself and I'm going to figure this out and I'm going to try harder and I'm going to make this happen. No, because of what Christ has done on my behalf. So in verse 25, he says, For you were straying like sheep. Like we read in Isaiah 53, none of us were seeking after God. We were straying like sheep, but we have returned to the shepherd and overseers uh, and the overseer of our souls. Gang, listen to me. A sheep that was once lost and then is found is foolish if it then has confidence in itself that it can get lost again and find itself. A sheep that's lost and is brought back, its confidence from that moment and moving forward is where? in the shepherd it's in the shepherd that's what Peter's drawing them to look at this amazing example in Christ this is what you're called to as you suffer for doing good you can't measure up to that standard but Christ accomplished it for you and your hope of living it out is only ever in him he is your shepherd follow him stick by his side Sheep would be foolish to venture out from the sheep pen all by itself, thinking it could fight on its own, thinking it could pick the right path for itself. Its confidence ought only ever to be in the shepherd. And here Peter says that it's not just, not just that Jesus is our shepherd, but he is uh, the overseer. He watches out. And where does he watch? Not just over our lives, not just over our circumstances. Where is he watching? He's watching over your very soul. Christ is a good shepherd. He is not a shepherd who would find a sheep and then be content for it to go and get lost again and, ah, I got enough. That one was a little, you know, he's a little weird anyways. Just let him go. Our hope is in this, that we have a good shepherd. 
and one who is overseeing our very souls, the core of who I am as a human being, the core of who these believers were as, as, as people that Jesus Christ Himself is looking over their very souls. And His purpose for them is to take them all the way to glory. And in His loving wisdom for them, He has called them for a time to suffer for what is good. And their hope to endure is their shepherd who is by their side all the way. All the way. We must understand our calling. We must see our example in Christ, and we must cling to our hope, which is Christ and Him alone. The psalmist put this so well. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me Beside still waters, he restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Because I can make it. Because I can do it. I'm good enough. I can, I can make it through and he'll be so proud of me. No, because you are with me and your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy will follow me all. Days of my life. Not without suffering, but the certainty is that goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and because of who my shepherd is, I am confident of this I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Forever. Let's pray together. Father, I Thank you that you have given us the perfect example of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray this morning as we look at that example that our, our confidence, our hope would not be then to look away from him to ourselves, but to look at him and to understand what he has accomplished on our behalf. I know that there are those in this room right now who are suffering. I pray that the promise of the care and oversight of the Good Shepherd for their very souls would be the confidence that they cling to, the hope that they will not let go of. And that for all of the moments that every single one of us in this room has failed in the midst of suffering, for all of the moments when, even when we've suffered for doing wrong or making bad choices, we've, 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 entered into the suffering and then sinned in the midst of the suffering, we rejoice in the, re in the fact that Christ bore all of those failures in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Our hope may it be in Christ and Him alone. We pray in His name.
Amen.